Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. As you know, today is the anniversary of the ordination of uh, the first uh, three priests of the work. Don Alvaro del Portillo, Jose Maria Hernandez de Garnica, and Jose Luis Musquiz, ordained by the Bishop of Madrid in 1944, today on June 25th. And it's necessary to mention this morning, I just found out that literally a little over an hour ago, Father Joe Escribano passed away. It's uh, sad news. He was 90 years old, but it was expected with his uh, stroke that he had yesterday, a massive stroke that left him uh, unconscious and put him in a coma. We give thanks to God, nevertheless, because uh, he was one of the first priests uh, of the work to come here to this region. I believe he was from Valencia, so he would have been ordained uh, in the mid-50s because he came here, as I recall, he came here in 1957. He may have come a little bit later because he first came to the U.S. and then drove up to, to Canada. And he had a um, he had an amazing ability to recount and tell stories about his uh, encounters with uh, our founder and uh, a real uh, constant bubbling joy within him, as well as his uh, curly hair that our father <laughs> used to joke about. <laughs> of course, his name was. Jose Maria Escribano, and when our founder first met him, he came to him, and he said, "Oh, you're 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 Jose Maria Escribano. Well, you must be my negative, because he's Jose Maria Escriba. No, no. So it's like the negative of Escriba, and." Uh, and that was something he never realized before, and it was truly, <laughs> he was like, you're neg my negative. And so we, we pray for the repose of his soul, and it is appropriate that he, the Lord take him today because he's joined up those first three priests uh, of the work. He was among the first, certainly the first generation of priests of the work. Many of that generation, like Father Joe Soria and so many others, had this uh, great dynamism after having met uh, our founder and many, many of them went uh, throughout the world and they were from that generation uh, of the work where in that started really 
in the 1940s when the number of members of the work started increasing more and more and the pastoral work that our father had started kind of getting out of hand. He, he just had so many things to do and he realized that he needed men and women to assume tasks of government and spiritual direction but it was clear that he needed priests in this new endeavor that he had now begun. He was the only priest but he needed priests for the sacraments, for the liturgy, for preaching, some of them for leadership positions. And plus, at the end of the Second World War, 1945, his dreams were great. He wanted to fan out into the international sphere. To us, it seems, well, kind of normal to, to want to go to different countries, but at that time, Spain was quite isolated. It was isolated from the rest of Europe. It had just gone through this bloody civil war. And uh, now, war was beginning in Europe. But he dreamed of going, nevertheless, to, to the rest of Europe, to North America, to Asia. He was beginning to dream about that. While everybody else they were just killing themselves. He would eventually go to Rome in 1946 because he wanted to move there from Spain because he really felt Rome was the place where that would give a best sense of the universal nature of, of Opus Dei. That this was not just for Spaniards. But he instilled these dreams in others. Those who came around him also were kind of infected by this deep desire to to go out and do this, to have these wild dreams. And all the first generation of priests had those sense of wild dreams. They wanted to go out into the rest of the world, and so many of them did. And uh, there was this deep conviction that people need to know about this. People need to hear about this. This is good stuff. This is premium quality. People from other cultures need to know other languages. And therefore there was Don Alvaro and these others, they had this desire to learn other languages. You know, Don Alvaro, learn Japanese. What are you going to use Japanese for if you're in Spain? You know? but, but the only reason is that you're going to go out. You're going to use it there. Yeah. Father Joe Escribano, he, he learned English. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to learn English. For us it's like, the English is like... But you know, for a Spaniard at that time it was like... It was this special language that other people learned. And of course, these languages were not for merely academic or theoretical reasons. They wanted to communicate with the rest of this vast world out there. There was this enthusiasm. And remember, Spain had no highways. They had an old, outdated rail system that, made, that moved very slowly and you had no, they had no money, and so it was difficult to go from one, from one city to the other. And generally speaking, in Spain at that time, people stayed in their own towns, they hung out there, they spoke Spanish, not only that, they spoke in their own dialect in Spanish. So one person from Spain to another person in Spain didn't always understand each other. They'd lived there for centuries. 
there was no international press really, not too much anyway. There was no TV, of course. Uh, they had radio, maybe. They got snippets of news. But our father would read these stories about missionaries going into the wide world. You know, people like St. Francis Xavier, you know, who had this dream you know, to bring the faith to others. And now, our father too, he had something to bring. He had a treasure. And others were getting the same bug. He said in the forge, when they heard of work with souls in far off lands, how their eyes sparkled, he said. They seemed ready to cross the ocean in one leap. And indeed, the world is very small when love is great. And that's, that's what our father was transmitting, that sense of love, that desire, that greatness, that ambition, that missionary zeal. And of course, at that time, in the 40s, 30s, 30s and 40s, uh, the country was very isolated from the rest of the world. But our father had this contact with professors, with academics, who could garner uh, scholarships and reasons to move out because of their profession. There's somebody who had a regular job, a lawyer or something, why would he leave Spain? But a professor could go to another university. And so the challenge was very exciting. So between 1932 and 1935, our founder had gotten to know something like 10 or 12 diocesan priests, and these guys were helping him. They could help in formation. He would give them weekly meetings. They could hear confessions. And yeah, they, they understood the spirit of the work, and they were, in some ways, he thought, well, this is, this is the setup. We're going to expand the work. It's going to be for all these, you know, your university types, these men and women. They're going to expand, and I'm going to have recourse to these guys. These are good guys. They're good and pious priests, and they're making themselves available, despite the fact that they're already uh, parish priests wherever, in different towns. But our father wanted to move faster. He wanted to expand. And these guys didn't quite understand necessarily, you know, why, like, what's, what's happening? Why, why expand? You've got a good group here of boys here, of good, nice women, girls. No. They didn't have the same drive. They had maybe little faith. So, by 1935, our father did not continue with that. And, uh, well, what happened was he started preaching more and more retreats. Uh, bishops were asking him to preach retreats in different dioceses. And he had to take those trains and, and go and preach to the clergy of the different dioceses. And I was thinking about that, like, why would they invite our father? He was a relatively young priest. He wasn't one of these venerable religious you know, who had, had garnered a great standing uh, among the population. I mean, our father garnered somewhat of a standing, but, but why did they inv invite him? Why did they want him? What was it that was characteristic about our founder? I mean, there were tons of religious preachers around, uh, you know, and, but at the same time, also some bishops did not want our father because... Our father had a specific style, it was quite unique, it was quite special, that led many bishops to ask for him. 
And for that, we have to understand also the, the background, the historical background of Spain during the Civil War and, and just after it. We, when we think of our father preaching, we can kind of picture his style, seated at a table like this, right? He would be seated in front of a massive, beautiful Baroque renable with St. Michael and Our Lady and beautiful, you know, ancient renables in a cavernous church somewhere. But that was not the style of the time. It was not the eloquent rhetoric of many religious preachers or certainly bishops of the time. I'm trying to picture what a typical preacher of the time would have sounded like. Probably there was, you know, from reading a little bit about the period, there, there was probably this very emotional, uh, dramatic tone set in a very political setting of the time. They would not sit intimately at a table. They would take advantage of the grandiose elements of the church. They would be at the pulpit, surrounded by their helpers and their minions, and, and uh, they would be like great Spanish orators. And of course, you'll remember that at that time, countries in Europe, before the war, Britain and France and Germany and Italy, Soviet Union, they all eyed each other with distrust. You know, they were all saying, like, who's this? Like, the, the diplomatic relations were tense. And, uh, and against that background, the Republican army and the, and the nationalists that had revolted, they, they sought to influence everybody to, to receive a better perception among the people about their role, whether they were nationalists or republicans, in the Civil War. And you can imagine that the nationalist side found a, a pretty powerful ally in the church and in the preachers. The republican army had, had you know, had governed and had antagonized the church. They'd killed many priests. Religious orders had been removed. And so, in the, in the church itself and many bishops, there was this anger, this hatred against the, the so-called reds. You know. Some bishops would bless the troops before they went into battle, or they'd bless the flags. For many bishops, at that time, during the Civil War, it was like a big crusade. And this held a strong emotional appeal. It was a crusade against communism. It was a crusade against uh, you know, those who would uh, destroy the church. For many of those bishops, war was like a, like a surgical operation directed by God himself to provide like a divine therapy and to help us against our enemies, those who had strayed from the godly path. And so you can imagine that that kind of preaching was very you know, dramatic, emotional. We have to fight against our enemies was the kind of tone. And it was about authority, about stand, the standing of the church. The church must defend itself. It wasn't really about personal sanctity. Well, maybe it was sometimes, I suppose. But the tone that our father took on was one of preaching the gospel. He would, he would, you know, 
like describe a scene from the gospel and then he would help people to place themselves it was like a, a lecture divina it was intimate it was about sanctity it was about the joy of our blessed mother we know he did not like uh, sort of using political elements in his preaching at all for many preachers, you know, who were the enemies? Our enemies are the communists, the anarchists, the Freemasons, the liberals. I don't know, all those bad people. And they're all rolled together into one, one sandwich. And well, so you could say that's the background of our father's preaching, and that's one of the reasons some of the bishops liked him or wanted to invite him, because he had this non-political tone to him. It was about Jesus and the gospel. It was about personal sanctity, virtues. How can I improve my relation with God in my daily work? And of course, at that time, things were growing. There was a pressing need for a priest of the work, the same spirit, but those same dispositions. So, in 1940, Don Alvaro and Jose Maria Hernandez de Garnica they were about to finish their engineering degrees. They were on board with what our father was proposing. That is, okay, you guys are engineers, but what, what would you say to being ordained priests? But he always insisted, if you don't want, it's okay, don't worry about it, just, you can be free. But both Don Alvaro and Don Jose Maria Hernandez de Garnica, they said, yeah, we're good, no problem. We'll, um, we're, we're open to this, I'm open, you know. John Calverdale says that uh, there's no indication that Don Alvaro felt any special attraction to the priesthood as such. He had, it wasn't like a dream of his from childhood or anything like that. But from the very beginning, when he knew our father, his dreams were dictated by doing Opus Dei and being himself Opus Dei. That's a phrase that is often used. And uh, he was ready to postpone all his studies in engineering and uh, to help his own family financially. He subordinated all his professional goals to really carrying out this apostolate, which had become more and more demanding. And he wanted to help develop this. He could have gone off and done his engineering and, yeah, this is my thing. But he wanted to really give his complete availability and his willingness to do whatever our father wanted and what, what the work needed. And so it's not surprising that he, he therefore said he'd be happy to be ordained. Our father, we find in his notes that it's as though our father was kind of like secretly praying that Don Alvaro would like agree to be a priest. You know? He said, uh, we have a line here from our father, my God, set Alvaro's heart on fire so that he may be a holy priest. And, of course, Don Alvaro's heart was already on fire. And clearly, our father's prayer was heard. He became a holy priest. He was beatified. And what's interesting is that when Don Alvaro told his colleagues, you know, his engineering buddies, they said, what? What? Are you crazy? You're an engineer. 
You have a mustache. You're not going to become a priest. For them, it was incomprehensible. It was just like, what? Because you can imagine that engineers in Spain at that time enjoyed a great social prestige. And they could always look forward to a brilliant future, well-paid recognition. But priests, eh. yeah, they were, well, actually had very little prestige. And so when they heard that he was going to be ordained, they were surprised. And then even the bishop of Madrid, you know, he took uh, Don Alvaro aside and he said to him, do you realize you're going to be losing your identity? Now you're a prestigious engineer. But after, if you get ordained, you're just going to be one priest among, you know, like dozens. You're just going to be one among many. You're just going to be a number. And Don Alvaro said, Your Excellency, I gave my identity to Jesus Christ many years ago. So I'm good. That's a, that's a beautiful phrase. I gave my identity to Jesus Christ. You do with me what you want. So, 1942, Bishop Ejo Garay, the Bishop of Madrid, had them start studies. They were older, so he said, well, they don't have to go to the seminary and go to all those classes. They, you know, they study you know, online kind of thing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, no classes. It was a good deal. Meanwhile, they could do their stuff. And, and then this this dean, the dean of, of the seminary of the university, Jose Maria Bueno Monreal, he coordinated all the studies. You know, he said, okay, you're going to study this, you're going to study that. Here's the list. Uh, here are the books. Here, take them. And by June of 1942, they had passed all their exams. Jose Luis Muskis and Jose Orlandes they too had started their studies. But Jose Orlandes was asked to go to Rome. He wanted to do historical studies and stuff. And in the meantime, Jose Luis Musquiz, he was added to the group with uh, Don Alvaro and um, Jose Maria Garnica. So Hernandez de Garnica. So he now added. So there were now three guys about to be ordained. Okay, but so now, good. So they're studying, it's all good, but uh, what canonical form does, do they take? Like, what is the title under which they are ordained? Are they ordained under the Diocese of Madrid? Are they, uh, they can't really be Opus Dei because Opus Dei is just like a, it's just a tiny little association of the faithful. It's not really something that you can have a priest ordained in. So there was a problem. They couldn't be a, a religious order. Opus Dei wasn't a religious order, so like... It was, they couldn't be just priests generically, like vagus. You know, any priest has to have a title and a superior that he has to be subjected to. So this was okay. It's all good getting all the studies done, but yeah, but okay, but what's going to be the title of ordination? That was a problem. Now it was a big problem, and our father prayed and couldn't figure it out. And uh, what's going to be the jurisdiction and who would pay them? Who would support them? And that's as you know in 1943 and February 14th, 1943 he's preoccupied about this and he goes to the women's center on the street of Jorge Manrique. There he celebrates mass and then boom, 
he gets it. He gets the idea. Because he had prayed about this before Mass. And he said that he had started seeking the juridical solution to be able to incarnate priests of the work. And in the middle of the Mass, and then after communion, he saw it. Okay, I know what it's going to be. It's going to be a society, a priestly society of the Holy Cross. And uh, he even that's when he made the seal of the work, remember? And that it would be intimately united to Opus Dei. Right? So, so it's going to be a priestly society, but associated with Opus Dei. That was the solution. But, okay, yeah, but now, now what? So it had to be approved. Well, where would it be approved? Well, it could be a society of common life without vows. A society. So he looked it up in canon law, and there was a thing that said, Society of Common Life Without Vows. Oh, okay, let's do that. It was foreseen, even if it was under the auspices of the congregation of the religious. But, you know, no vows, so kind of like not religious. And so they could be incarnated in that association. So our father went to sp speak to the nuncio, and then he spoke to the bishop, and they said, let's do it, let's do that. And then that's when our father sent Don Alvaro to Rome to get the Neil Obstat. Anyway, the, the adventure continued, right? And when Don Alvaro went by plane to Rome, there were bombs in the air, and people in the plane began to shout, Mamma Mia! They really thought they were going to get shot down because it was a, there was a, I don't know, some kind of, you know, air, airplane fight in the air with bombs. And they said, Mamma Mia, we're going to drown. But our Don Alvaro said, no, no, we're not going to drown. I'm on a mission from God, so he's, he's not going to, it's not going to take us out now, no problem. So he was just, I'll have another uh, drink, please. Uh, you know. <laughs> no, I don't know if he was. But uh, but in any case, it was, they got the Neil Obstat, and eventually on June 26th, 1943, the, well, the Constitution was approved and stuff, and then they finally ordained. It was a great day. Our, our father didn't want to be there, just not to be at the center of attention, Center of attention were those first three priests: Don Alvaro, Jose Maria Hernandez Garnica, and Jose Smuskis. And then, after that year, many others came, and among them, eventually, of course, Jose Maria Scribano and uh, Jose Maria Scribano from Valencia, who today has joined them in heaven. So let us pray to those uh, three priests today to intercede for us to give us strength and give us that same zeal, that same dynamism to do apostolate. And uh, let's pray to them to intercede for all priests of the world, because like we need priests, you know, like we need priests. But we need priests here in Canada. We just love Father Jose Maria, Father Joe, uh, but we need more priests. We need numerous to be able to send to Rome to, to go to the Roman College and, and be priests. And uh, that way we can expand more, open our other centers, and stuff like that. So that's those first three priests to intercede for us. Of course, 
they are joined with uh, our founder there in heaven with the Blessed Virgin Mary. A big reunion, a big a feast with them. Let's ask them for their strength, their intercession today. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.